0: So I know a good number of you, those of you who don't know me, my name is David, I am from England, we always go through the, 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 the game of people trying to guess my accent. I've lived in the States now for about six years, and I spent most of that time here in San Diego, but for the last year and a half I've been in Seattle, and I've just come back. And when I came back, Carrie asked me to give a talk, and so I asked her what she wanted me to talk about, and... She suggested Mary, which made me chuckle, because out of all the things in Catholicism, out of all of the major issues and doctrines, there's probably nothing more that I've struggled with than the Marian doctrines and the question of Mary. So this talk is really uh, me telling the story of how I struggled with Mary, and ultimately how I came to accept the Catholic teaching regarding her and this is a massive topic so I'm going to be touching on lots of different things and if something is of particular interest to you please stop me and we'll talk about it because what I do when I, when I prepare a talk is I usually have more material than I'm possibly going to be able to get through and just if people want to ask questions or comments I always find that far more interesting you know it's much more engaging whether I'm the one giving the talk or whether I'm the one actually receiving it so feel free to chip in ask questions comments And if I say anything that you don't understand, the accent gets in the way, same thing, just stop me, and I'll have another go at translating it into American. Okay? Um, But first we should begin in prayer. So let's begin with, this is a hymn of the Byzantine Church that we pray every Sunday. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. It is truly proper to glorify you, Mary, O bearer of God, the ever-blessed, immaculate, and the mother of our God, more honourable than the cherubim, and beyond compare, more glorious than the seraphim, who a virgin gave birth to God the Word, true bearer of God, we magnify thee. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You guys sing that. Well, we do sing that, but... <laughs> I, I, next time, I'll just bring the music, and we can all sing it together. So I said that I struggled with mary so where did all of that come from well i grew up in a catholic family Uh, my mother was a catechist for first holy communion and uh, and then uh, also for the children's liturgy and my sister did the same and i served on the altar and some of my most vivid childhood memories are of the three of us praying so i had I, i was brought up with a really good foundation However, Mary didn't really figure into our family's faith. You know, She was very rarely ever mentioned, maybe at Christmas. You kind of have to at that point. Um, but we also never prayed the rosary as a family. I actually think the first time I actually prayed the rosary, I was in my early 20s. And I think if you would have spoken to the eight, nine-year-old David and asked him about Mary, I think the profound theological insight that I would have given was, Mary is for girls. Because I noticed that the girls typically had more interest in Mary, and I assume that was because Mary was often uh, rendered in pictures wearing very pretty dress, and girls like dresses. And she's often shown holding the baby Jesus, and girls like babies. And when it came to the nativity plays in school and kindergarten, all of the girls wanted to be Mary, Whereas the boys, I mean, I don't think we even really wanted to be St. Joseph. Because if you were Joseph, then that meant you had to be in close proximity. Well, we love St. Joseph, he's great. Uh, we, uh, but if you were St. Joseph, you then had to be in pro- close proximity to the girl who's playing Mary. And as every boy knows, girls have cooties. So instead, we always wanted to be shepherds, so we could take sticks to school, or to be maybe the, the, one of the kings, so we get a flashy outfit. So, Mary is for girls. I'm afraid to say I think my understanding of Mary and her role in salvation history really didn't progress much, much beyond that for quite a few years. I became a teenager, and I continued going to Mass. A lot of people in their teenage years have some kind of rebellion. I didn't really. Um, and I went to Mass because it was expected of me. You know, I dared to cross my mother. But also... I quite enjoyed it. Uh, about this time, we had begun going to the Benedictine monastery that was attached to my school. And the architecture was beautiful. They had these great soaring Gothic arches and these vaulted ceilings. And the music was beautiful. You know that? The otherworldly nature of uh, Gregorian chant, you know, sung in Latin. And I always found a deep peace in the silence that we had after communion. It didn't hurt that there were some attractive females that also went to Mass. You know, it's often said that God's beauty is made manifest in the, in the world in many ways. Well, As a teenage boy, this was a way I was particularly interested. But again, Mary still didn't really figure in my spirituality and in the formation that I received at Catholic school. But I then went to university. And when I went to university, my faith came alive. And it came alive principally through a community known as Verbum Dei. Now this is an Opus Day. Opus Day is the work of God. Verbum Day is the word of God. They're both communities, and Verbum Day's big thing was prayer with Scripture, and they were very evangelistic. I started reading Scripture more, and my faith really started to grow. But it was also about that time that I started to realise that I was somewhat of the odd one out. That the other Catholics that I knew, they cared about Mary, and Mary was involved in their spirituality. And I remember when I had, I had introduced one of the head missionaries to my mother a few weeks before. And then later, she and I were having a spiritual direction. And I told her, Mary, I just don't get what the big deal is. And Maeve, the missionary, she said, David, with a mother as wonderful as yours, how can you possibly not love Mary? Her point was that if I had such a wonderful earthly mother, how I couldn't just naturally fall in love with a heavenly mother. But I still didn't really get it. it. It just seemed a bit strange to me. And then I left university and I began to experience regular parish life. And it was about this time that I started to become more and more critical of the Catholic Church. My complaints were the usual ones. Homilies are boring. Music is either amazingly trite or just plain awful. <laughs> and I mourned the lack of community. Because when I'd been part of Verbum Day, I was used to having you know, people of my, my own age and people very engaged in their faith. And I didn't find that in my local Catholic parish. So it wasn't too long before I started attending uh, a non-Catholic uh, a Protestant congregation. And there we had dynamic sermons, excellent music, and a really vibrant, vibrant community. And I really grew in my faith. But the trouble was is that my disinterest in Mary now started to morph and change and become much closer to objections to Mary. And they were the typical objections that you often hear Protestants say. You know, Catholics place too much emphasis on Mary, you shouldn't pray to her. Catholics attribute to Mary things that you could only possibly attribute to God. Fast forward a few years, I started to see problems with Protestant theology. Uh, This is really another talk for another time. Um, But the central point was that I saw that sola scriptura, this idea that the Bible and the Bible alone is our infallible rule of faith, I started seeing real problems with it. And I had now recognized that Jesus established a church, and that church was the Catholic church. So I returned full-time to the church, but it wasn't like I had all of my issues sorted. Mary was still one of those things I really struggled with, I couldn't understand, as well as a whole load of other other doctrine and practice. And now I would compare it to John 6. So Jesus has just given his hard saying, telling the crowds that they must eat his flesh, they must drink his blood, and people start leaving him, They start wandering off. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, are you going to leave as well? And Peter responds to them, saying, Lord, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter didn't really understand the whole eat my flesh, drink my blood thing, really any better than anyone else. But he knew Jesus. He trusted Jesus. And he knew that the way for that he would come to understand this is by staying close to him. And likewise, I now recognize the Catholic Church as being the one founded by Christ. So... Even although I didn't understand it, I knew this is where I had to be. This is where I had to stay. I was, I was granting the church the benefit of the doubt. I was extending them a line of credit that I don't understand this, but I trust that if this is Jesus' church, he'll reveal it to me in time. And that's really what the rest of this talk is about. How some of the, some of the things that I learned and experienced that really started to help me come to terms with Mary, both intellectually, and in terms of my heart. And the things that shifted my attitude towards her, there were lots. Some of them was the work of apostolates, like Catholic Answers, hearing people explain some of the Marian doctrines to me. And also I had some friends who I really respected. I, I regard them as, regarded them as very, very faithful Christians, very, very alive in their faith, they loved scripture, but they also loved Mary. They had room in their hearts for her. And a lot of it was just hanging out with them and seeing how they integrated Mary into their faith and into their devotion. But if I sort of had to pick one thing that really transitioned my, my, my perspective on Mary, it would be scripture itself. And I don't simply mean that I spent time reading the passages in the New Testament that refer to her directly. And there are quite a few, and they're definitely very, very rich. But it was a different way of reading the Bible. Reading the Bible as a whole. The concept known as biblical typology. The idea that when we look in the Old Testament, we look for things that are fulfilled in the New. And when we see things in the New Testament, we look for earlier echoes of of those events. St. Augustine had a a wonderful way of saying this. He said, the New Testament lies hidden in the Old, and the Old is unveiled in the New. Seeing the Bible as one whole book because God is, God is the storyteller. He's the expert storyteller. So he teaches us not only in words, but in deeds. Through history we see preparation, we see echoes, we see types and figures to prepare us for what's to come later. And obviously we have this handed to us on a platter at Mass. Where does the first reading from Mass typically come from? The Old Testament. The Old Testament. And we then have a Gospel reading. And there's almost always a relationship between the two. Sometimes that Old Testament reading is predicting something that's going to happen, which we hear come to fruition in the Gospel. And sometimes we see a figure, a pattern, that then gets echoed in the Gospel. And if you stay for Bible study later, often the first reading also ties in with that theme. And so, as I began to read the Bible in this way, I started seeing lots of types of Mary, lots of foreshadowing of Mary in the Old Testament. And the first one that was really explained to me was understanding Mary as the Ark of the New Covenant. So before we get to that, we've got to say, well, what was the, what was the Ark? Has everyone seen Raiders of the Lost Ark with Indiana <laughs> Yes. Okay, those of you who haven't seen it should be ashamed of yourselves. Please, this week, go and watch it. It's an absolute classic. But when, uh, when Moses was leading the children of Israel out of Egypt, when they were in the desert, God commanded Moses to build this Ark. It was a box, it was a chest made of acacia wood, and it was adorned inside and out with gold. And then on the top, there were these two cherubim, two angels, with their wings outstretched. And this box was central to the worship of Israel. It was kept in the tabernacle, in the mobile temple that they had moving around through the desert. It it led them into battle when when they were fighting their enemies. And when eventually, the children of Israel settled in the Promised Land and the Temple was built, the Ark was moved into the Holy of Holies, into the most sacred part of the Temple. And it was holy for a couple of reasons. One was God commanded it. But also it was set apart. In many ways it was just a box. It was a gold box. But it was set apart for God's purposes. And that's really what the word holy really means. Something set apart for God. But also, it was holy because of what was inside it. And when my friend was telling me about this and explaining that Mary was the Ark of the Covenant, you know, she explained that in, inside the Ark were the tablets of stone where, that had the law, the Torah. It also had Aaron's staff. Aaron was the high priest, so there was a symbol of his priestly authority. Um, and there was also a gold jar filled with manna. And if you remember, as they're traveling around the desert, God feeds them daily with the bread from heaven, the manna. And my friend asked me, what is in Mary's womb? I responded with the obvious answer, Jesus. And she said, well, would you say that Jesus is a high priest? I said, well, absolutely. That's in the epistle to the Hebrews. It actually calls him that. She said, great. Um, Would you say he's the word of God? I was like, well, again, absolutely, that's how, that's how John's Gospel opens up. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And I saw where she was going. Was Jesus also the bread of heaven? Of course. So the three things that were in the Ark paralleled with the identities of Jesus, being, as being our great high priest, the Word of God, and the bread come down from heaven. So the Ark was holy for the, for the reason of what it contained. And likewise Mary was also holy for what it contained. But Mary was surpassed the Ark in so many ways. The Ark was a box. Mary was flesh and blood, in the image and lights of God. The Ark contained holy things, but Mary's womb contained God incarnate. And not only that, she carried him for nine months, she gave birth to him. And Jesus tells us that he feeds us with his body and blood. But before that, Mary fed him from her own body. And I soon found out that my friend just wasn't amazingly clever. She wasn't just the, <laughs> this amazing theologian, but that this typological way of reading scripture was ancient. And in the ancient church, the early church fathers, those who succeeded the uh, apostles in leading the church and teaching the church, this is how they approached scripture. And here's a quotation from St. Athanasius of Alexandria. He's from the yeah, late, uh, uh, third, third, fourth century. O noble virgin, who is equal in your greatness, O dwelling place, for God the word. To whom among all creatures shall I compare you, O virgin? You are greater than them all, O ark of the covenant, clothed in purity instead of gold. You are the ark in which is found the golden vessel containing the true manna, that is the flesh in which divinity resides. So you see the reverence that the early church had for Mary and seeing in the Ark, a figure of Mary. But whereas the Ark was clothed in gold, Mary is clothed in grace and purity. And there are lots of other parallels that we could could point to, but like I said, I want to touch on a few different points and we can possibly come back to them another time. So I saw Mary as Ark Ark of the New Covenant, and it really helped change my thinking. I started to get an understanding as to why was she important? Why she was holy? And why Catholics had such reverence for her, particularly in the early church. And another image that I was later taught, I read a book, Hail Holy Queen, by Scott Hahn, and he described Mary as the Queen Mother. In the Gospel of Matthew, which is actually the Gospel we're going to read tonight, Matthew goes to great pains to paint Jesus as the new Davidic king. You know, that he is the new David. He is the new son of David, coming to establish the new kingdom. You know, the first thing in Jesus' preaching is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Dr. Hahn argues that, well, if Jesus is the king, then Mary is the queen. Now, Tom our is that seems a bit strange. Because, typically, who is the queen? The wife. the wife of the king. But in ancient Israel, and in most Near Eastern countries, that wasn't the case. Does anyone know why? How many wives did the king often have? You read about Solomon and, you know, that, that guy, wow. He, he had many mothers-in-law. Um, but you had a king with many wives. So who's queen? Well, for, to give the continuity, you had the mother of the queen. She was called the Geberah, literally means the great lady. And so when you look in scripture in 1 Kings, you see Solomon, who is the son of David, and he's king and he becomes king when he rides into Jerusalem. Does anyone know what he rode on? A donkey. A donkey. And, and the people proclaimed, Hosanna to the son of David. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> so clearly we can see that Jesus is the new son of David. He also comes in on a donkey and, and receives the same welcome. So Solomon was king, but his mother was the queen, Bathsheba. Now if you recall, this is the woman with whom David committed adultery and then orchestrated the death of her husband. And there's a particular episode in First Kings, where a guy called Adonijah, he comes to Bathsheba and he asks her to intercede for him on, on his behalf with her son, the king. And in this episode, we see one of the functions of the Geberah. The, one of her purposes was to intercede for the people with the king and Bathsheba comes into the presence of her son and the biblical text records what happened it says that Solomon rose as she entered because at least at this point in his life he was still a gentleman that changed a little later (laughs) but he rose to meet her and then he bows to her now this is the king of the country he's bowing to somebody and he's bowing to his mother as a sign of respect and then he sits on his throne and commands that a, a throne be put beside him for his mother Now, his mother makes the request and gets turned down. But fortunately for us, we have a better king than Solomon. We have Jesus. And we have a much better queen as well than Bathsheba, because we have Mary. And so in this, I started seeing, again, the idea of Mary's importance. That if Jesus is bringing this new kingdom, if he is the new king, then she is the new queen. But that also one of her roles is as an intercessor. And it was about this time, particularly through Catholic Answers, that I started seeing that saintly intercession made sense. There are, there are some typical Protestant objections, like, why are you asking dead people to pray for you? But Jesus said that God is God of the living, not of the dead. So they're alive. In fact, they're more alive than you are, because they're with God in heaven. And we actually see this in the book of Revelation. We see angels and saints offering these bowls of incense, which are the prayers of those on earth. So that was Mary's ark, the new Ark, Mary as the new queen. The other the other image that really made a lot of sense to me was Mary as the new Eve. Now in sacred Scripture, Jesus is specifically identified as the new Adam, that just in the same way that Adam was the head of humanity and in his fall, we all fall. Jesus is the new Adam, and in his redemption, we all have this route to redemption. So the early church fathers saw this and they ran with it because they said, well if Jesus is the new Adam who's going to be the new Eve? And they saw parallels between Mary and Eve because they both received the word of an angel. You know, Eve received the word of Satan who was a fallen angel. But Mary received the word of God's messenger Gabriel. And as a result of that, Eve Disbelieved, She doubted in God's goodness. She didn't think that God actually had her best intentions in mind. Whereas in Mary, she responded with belief, with faith, saying, let it be done unto me according to your word. Eve resulted in disobedience, Mary obedience. Eve with death and Mary in life. These two women are, are, are the hinge points of salvation history. And in this idea of Mary being New Eve, we actually find the germ of pretty much all Marian doctrine that we find in the church. But I just wanted to read a couple of extracts from the early church again, so we can see just how early this idea appears. The first first recorded instance is St. Justin Martyr in about the year AD 150. So we are literally talking about the second generation, the generation following the apostles. This was the teaching. For Eve, who was a virgin and undefiled, having conceived the word of the serpent, brought forth disobedience and death. But the Virgin Mary received faith and joy when the angel Gabriel announced the good tidings to her that the spirit of the Lord would come upon her and the power of the highest would overshadow her. About 30 years later, another early church father, Irenaeus of Lyon, he wrote something very similar and he concluded, thus the knot of Eve's disobedience was loosed by the obedience of Mary what the Virgin Eve had bound in unbelief, the Virgin Mary loosed in faith. Have any of you done the novena, Mary undoer of knots? That's where this comes from, from about 180 AD, the teaching of the fathers. But there's also, come in, sit down Hi. But we see other, other proof that Mary is this new Eve, particularly when we look at John's gospel and compare it to the book of Genesis. Because they both begin with, in the beginning. In Genesis, it's in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In John's Gospel, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, the Word was God. It goes on to say that nothing came into being except through that Word. So there's this creation narrative in both of them with the same kind of imagery of light and darkness. And if you actually follow John's Gospels through, you actually find that on the seventh day there is a wedding. Just as in the book of Genesis. Because in the the book of Genesis, Adam opens his eyes on the seventh day, after being put into a deep sleep. And up until this point, he's just been going, dog, cat, giraffe. (laughs) But he wakes up, and he sees this vision, the crown of creation. He sees Eve, and he says, at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. It's amazing how guys can get into poetry when there are girls around. But, but Adam, Adam sees Eve. And then we go back to John's Gospel and we see this wedding. Now, the bride and the groom, they're not mentioned because that's not the point of the story. John is drawing your attention to the fact that we now have the new Adam, Jesus, and also the new Eve, Mary. And if you recall what happens, Mary comes to him and says, they have no more wine. And he, Jesus responds, what is that between us? But he, he refers to her in a particular way. He says, woman, what is that between us? You might think, you know, Jesus, I know you're God and everything, but, you know, this is your mother. You know, <laughs> honour your mother and your father. That's one of, the, one of the, the commandments of the law. But it wasn't meant as a slight. It's to draw a parallel. Because how does Adam refer to his wife as woman? And we, in, the, in John's Gospel, we're told that this is the first of Jesus' signs. And then at the end of John's Gospel, we have his last sign, where Jesus, the new Adam, is present again. And so is the new Eve, Mary, at the foot of the cross. And it's there that Jesus says to her, woman, behold your son. There's that woman again. And son, behold your mother. Now back in Genesis, we're told that Adam called his wife Eve because she would be the mother of the living. And now here we have Jesus giving Mary to the beloved disciple and ultimately to us because she is now gonna be the mother of all those who are supernaturally alive in Christ. So, with all of these ideas, I really started seeing why Mary was important. But do Catholics still go too far with Mary? But the point is, we don't worship her, we honor her. And Mary said herself, all generations will call me blessed. And when I was a Protestant, I couldn't see how that was fulfilled through time or in my own church. How is Mary, you know, for all generations, called blessed? We barely mention her. Much like in my own home, maybe at Christmas if we have to. And one of the main problems that a lot of Protestants have with Catholic devotion to Mary is that we sing songs to her. But if you think that you don't have the Eucharist, if you go to church to hear a sermon and pray and do some singing, you're going to associate singing is worship, And it really isn't. If you think about it, we sing to each other quite a lot. If it's somebody's birthday, you sing happy birthday. If... Um, in England, when someone leaves the company, you're quite often at some point after a few pints at the pub, somebody, somebody will start singing for He's a Jolly Good Fellow. And I've been known on occasion to bust out my guitar and serenade a lady. So we, we do sing to people, and it's not worship. And the thing that I found fascinating as I started digging into the church history behind this is it's actually in songs, in hymns, that we actually find some of the earliest attestations of Marian devotion. Here's a hymn that comes from the year 250. It's called Subtuum Presidium. And we actually still sing it in our church, and it's still, it's still found in quite a lot of places. It says, Beneath your compassion we take refuge, O God-bearer. Our prayers do not despise our petitions in time of trouble, but rescue us from dangers. Only pure, only blessed one. So you see that, again, the early church, they understood Mary as an intercessor and there's this clear, strong devotion to her. And whenever I wasn't sure about, you know, do, do, do Catholics put too much focus on Mary? I was always encouraged by a quotation from St. Maximilian Colby, who was one of the martyrs in World War II. He said, ne- never be afraid of loving Mary too much. You'll never be able to love her more than Jesus did. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned earlier, honoring your father and your mother was a commandment of the law, which Jesus did perfectly. And if we're called to imitate Jesus, surely we should do the same. And the the image that I really like when I think of this is of an art exhibit. Imagine a friend of yours is an artist and they invite you to their opening exhibit. You turn up at the gallery and you don't look at any of the pictures. You spend all the time talking with your friend. Isn't that that kind of insulting? what about if you, instead of doing that, went around and looked at all of, all of, the, all of the paintings, all of the sculptures, and marvelled at the artistry, of the beauty, of the brilliance of what your friend was able to produce? It's the same with Mary. If we love the art, we honour the artist. And there's actually a great quote by Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation, on this. He has a commentary on the Magnificat. And he says, the true honour of Mary is the honour of God, the praise of God's grace. Mary does not wish that we come to her, but through her to God. And this is what all good Marian devotion should do. We, we praise God for his grace in as seeing it manifested in the life of Mary. But that is ultimately a springboard to point us to God. I've heard people comparing it to the moon and the sun. The moon doesn't generate its own light, but it does reflect the light from the sun. If we honour Mary, we honour Jesus. I'm just going to wrap things up a little bit with the last image that I found really helpful. And that was Mary as our model. I knew a priest who explained to me that when we look at the life of Mary, we are given a path that we should follow something to imitate. Mary was open to God's call. When an angel turned up she said let it be done unto me. We should do the same. She cared for other people. We're told that after the Annunciation she immediately goes off to see her cousin Elizabeth. We should have the same care for other people. When she meets Elizabeth she she speaks about how my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Saviour that joy, that life offered to God is something that we should also imitate. She was a guide to others. At the wedding in Cana, when, the, when she to the servants, what does she say? Speaking about Jesus, she says, do whatever he tells you. Now, that's very good advice. Something that we, sh- advice we should take and advice we should give other people. And Mary also meditated on what God had done. It says several times in Scripture that she treasured these things in her heart. She was a contemplative, and this is something that we should do as well, to reflect on God's work in our own life and on his words in the sacred Scripture. And the Catholic teaching is that at the end of Mary's life, she's assumed body and soul into heaven. And this is ultimately our goal as well. We might, our bodies might be delayed until the resurrection, but Mary's ultimate end is our ultimate end, to be body and soul in heaven to participate in the life of the Trinity. And we meditate on all of these things as we pray the Rosary. Because in the Rosary, we meditate upon the events in the life of Jesus and his mother. And so with that, let's end with a Hail Mary. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, Mary, full of grace, the Lord Lord is with thee. thee. Blessed art thou among women, and and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you very much. Any questions, I'm around. We're going to do this again next month. If there's a particular topic you'd like us to discuss, just come and let me know.